to One Life. If you didn't hear it before, my name is Rich. Um, thank you for joining us. Those of you who are listening online, live right now, or will be later, thank you also for listening. Um, it's always interesting when you come up here on a day when there's some sun and you can see it in our 70s uh, window action. Um, so thank you for joining us. Today we are in the final week of our sermon series entitled Simplify, and in it we have been looking at and being challenged in how we may have complicated life in various areas of our life, and at the same time trying to make space to consider God's invitation to us to simplify those areas. And as we've been learning, just because the, the, the conversation is called Simplify doesn't mean it makes it easy or like effortless which is why we had a previous sermon series on this idea of change and what it looks like to be transformed and changed and renewed over and over again. The hope in this series is that we would hear the invitation from God to untangle ourselves from living as the world says, to then change and embrace God's way of seeing and living in the world as illustrated in Jesus. And so far we've looked at all these categories, money, time, how we see and treat people, our work and family. And if you've missed any of them, I highly recommend you going back. They've been really good. But today, as we close out our series, we're going to be pondering this idea of church. You're all here right now. And so what does it look like to be the church? How do we view the church? What does it mean for us to live in the way God intended it? And so imagine, if you will, sitting down with God and asking God, how have we, as humanity, possibly complicated or gotten ourselves entangled in ways of thinking about the church that really aren't the way God intended? What might God say? Which is a really great question. And I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, some of what we're going to say today may challenge us, may rattle some cages, if you will, with regards to how you may have viewed the church and maybe even how you view what it means to be a Christian. So I want to encourage you, no matter where you are, um, to hold on. Stick with me, if you will, as my hope is that we'll hear that it is actually quite simple and quite beautiful that the invitation that God has for us, and uh, that as we hear it, hopefully it'll help us realign our views of the church to be more Christ-like. I am also going to say, normally we do kind of these connection card questions at the end. I'm going to actually ask you lots of questions during our time, and so I encourage you even now, if you want to pull that out, to jot down some of those questions, some of your thoughts. Uh, I would love to hear them from you, but I also want you to know there's going to be a lot of them. So if there's one that sticks out to you, write it down, and we'd love your thoughts, and bring it to us at the end of the service. In preparation, though, uh, I found myself flooded with all these stories and examples and discussions and conversations and experiences over my life with regards to church that were moving me and challenging me and causing me to think. I actually wrote this sermon like four times to then select all and hit delete and start again uh, because I had too many things going on. And so this morning, hopefully uh, you can stick with me and I want to share some thoughts with you and hopefully that resonates with you. Um, And as I do, I want you to be thinking of your own church experiences, particularly moments that made you feel like you were welcomed and invited and like you were in as well as those moments where you felt like the outsider and that you absolutely were like in the wrong place. I want you to be thinking about the parameters that those particular churches had, including ours, that for better or for worse, created an us-them dynamic that made you feel welcomed and in or not, and why. And with that, to think about whether or not those represent God's intention for the church. 
Now, one of the things that I thought about in preparation was this conversation that happened in grad school, which was a long time ago, but it stuck with me ever since. The professor was teaching this class on the mission of the church in the postmodern world. And he had a question for the class. How many of you are church planters starting a church from the scratch? And how many of you are currently leading a church that's uh, been long established? And it was kind of this continental divide. And the main reason there was this divide was there was this group of church planters. And basically they said they wanted to start a church because they didn't want to deal with all the historical parameters that a church had had. Whereas the other people who are in an established church, say like this church for 40 years or 100 years old, like the church I used to pastor, it's super hard to deal with the long-standing historical established parameters that have been there forever to work with. And, and how do you do that? And so church planners were like, I just want to create my own parameters all by myself with no one else's history to deal with. The professor then shared a stat that I thought was fascinating, and it was that in all of Europe, if you were to see all the different Christian expressions or denominations at that time, there was probably around 300 distinct different expressions of Christian churches in all of Europe. But then in contrast, even though that sounded like a lot, he said in all of the United States, there was over 30,000, 30,000 different distinct denominations or Christian church variations, each one at some point making a decision, creating a distinction or a parameter or a line in the sand that they drew, making a clear us versus them decision. We're here, you're not, and as a result, there's a separation. Whether it's Baptist or Pentecostal or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Methodist or Catholic or Orthodox, 30 plus thousand distinct expressions. Now, is this how the church should be? Is this what God intended? And how can this affect the way we see and understand who a Christian is or not? If you have a Bible, if you'd please open it to Luke chapter 23. We're going to look starting at verse 39. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. Um, We will have it displayed on the wall behind me. My hope is we're going to look at an example of Jesus that's going to give us a different view of how we should view and posture ourselves as we live out what it means to be the church. This is from the crucifixion narrative. And in this scene, we're seeing Jesus on the cross, and he has a criminal crucified on his right and on his left. And the text starts like this, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now as a side note, this curtain that separated uh, the Holy of Holies is what's being talked about here. And the Holy of Holies represented God's presence back in the day, and so being torn in two, it was signifying now that in the death of Jesus, the separation between God's presence 
and the rest of the world has been torn apart. That God is doing a sort of new kind of ollie ollie all come free kind of situation we're going to discuss some more. But the text continues. It says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last breath. Now with that, let me invite us all to take a breath. And I, I want to pray. Um, Father, Son, Spirit, as we gather, I pray every person in this place, every person who is or will be listening through your podcast here, God, I just pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to receive your word. And God, I just ask if there's any limitations that we have put on to your goodness, to your love, any parameters that we've placed around it, I pray, Lord, that you would use this message, this conversation, to blow them apart. God, help us to reframe who you are and what you're up to in the community that you've called us to. And God, I pray that you would come in your spirit, come in your power, and fill us again with your unconditional love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you and what various church experiences you've had. I've had a lot and a lot of them came to mind. One in particular was the Catholic Church. My entire Sclafani family in Brooklyn has been going to ever since they came over to the U.S. from Sicily. That church, Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, still to this day only has services in Italian and Latin. Um, they have strong beliefs about infant baptism. So me not being baptized as a child was like a death warrant. They have very strong opinions on who can take communion. So even me being a licensed pastor for 25 years, I'm not allowed to take communion in that place. And even how they understand the elements of communion is very distinct. I've also been a part of other church communities where women weren't allowed to lead or speak, and they were required to wear head coverings. And I've been at a church at one time where the way they worshipped was through classical music, and you participated by listening. And I've been through all these churches and camps and conferences and classes where I experienced all these different parameters, distinctions, you name it, that made me feel welcomed or made me feel like quite the outsider. And in each of these examples, the people that were there were super sincere, very passionate. They loved God. And God used each of these communities to shape things in my life. But if I'm being really honest, in each of these experiences, the people that were connected to these places and situations... They were wound up pretty tight in a number of ways, particularly around their theology, around their ethics, you name it. They had very specific ways of doing things. And those strong parameters created this insider-outsider dynamic. And what we see is that that has been happening in churches all around the world. Do you speak in tongues? Yes or no. Do you believe in women in leadership? What do you believe about the LGBTQ community? Who can take communion? What are your beliefs about the end times? What about creation versus evolution? Do I have to dress up or can I come casually? Are we allowed to drink coffee in the sanctuary or does that have to be out there? What Bible version do you use? Which creeds do you rely on? Is drinking okay? How about swearing or smoking or the occasional cigar? You name it. In every case, they're clear parameters. And if you're in on those, then you're in. You're probably saved because you agree with all these things. And if you're not, there's probably something going on. And we may even question your understanding of God and your salvation based off those parameters. And if you think about it, the criteria really depends on those communities. 
And in many ways, the community has conditioned them to read the scriptures in a particular way so that you see certain things, minor issues, and other things as major issues. And generally speaking, anything you struggle with is the minor issues, and anything other people struggle with are the major issues, even if those major issues are only listed maybe three times in the scriptures, and yours are related in the scriptures like 300 times. It's all arbitrary. They're all parameters, and they create an in or out situation. Now, see if this resonates with you and your church experiences. Here's what I would say most churches look like versus what I think God intends them to look like. And hopefully you can read this. But we're going to start with a parameter community. This is most churches. If you look at a parameter community, generally speaking, they're defined by those parameters. And there's 30 plus thousand of them around the United States alone. And those are specific parameters. And so as a result, those parameters, you either agree with them or not, and it creates an us versus them dynamic from the moment you walk in. And then being saved in those kind of dynamics creates this club membership, right? I'm in, I agree to these things, I'm part of this club, you're clearly not. And so then the Bible becomes in many ways this membership manual, And you read it as a result, you apply it as a result, and other people look at it differently, and they're clearly not part of the membership. And you can see this becomes like an idol. Church becomes far more about being in and what you do and what you don't do and all these kinds of things, and less about our need for Jesus and our relationship with God. And I'm saying this because this is most churches, and in many ways our church does this too. I think God intends it to be what I call a centered community. And you see the difference is that what defines a centered community is what's in the center. And that center should be Jesus. And as a result, there's not an us-them dynamic. It's everybody and God, not us and them. And so then being saved is anyone who is dying to, is moving towards the center. I want to know more of the center. I want to become more like the center. I want to care and love like whatever that is in the center, in this case, Jesus. And we're all joining together to move towards that center. And so then the Bible becomes a travel guide. It helps us on this journey. And as a result, it's not an idol because everything about it is pushed towards the center. And that's exactly what we need our life in Christ. And so now with that in mind, if you go back to the thief on the cross story, the thief says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers, truly I tell you, today you'll be in paradise. Notice what Jesus did not ask. He didn't ask anything, right? It didn't go down like this, thank God. The thief says, remember me, please, can I go in the kingdom? And Jesus up there on the cross hanging there as well says, well, let me ask. Do you smoke? Uh, You don't play cards, do you? Uh, How old do you think the earth is? Um, It depends. It's a great question. Let me ask. Um, How were you baptized? Or do you speak in tongues? Or how many scripture verses do you have memorized? And you see Jesus, yeah, hallelujah. Jesus doesn't go there. He doesn't say, let me give you the four spiritual laws. He doesn't run through the Romans road. He doesn't ask any of these kinds of questions. He sees the heart of this person. That's it. And he says, you're in. You have a heart that's oriented towards me, towards Jesus. You're in. It's absolutely amazing, and it's incredibly simple. This guy had nothing going for him. His theology couldn't have been any clearer. 
he has a very bad view, or at least an inaccurate view of who Jesus is. I mean, he, meeting him for the first time, he's two breaths away from dying. So he doesn't have good Christology. He doesn't have great theology. He's obviously not lived a great life. He's being crucified on the cross for his crimes. But what he had was some kind of awareness that if there's any hope for him at all, it's found only in this guy next to him, Jesus. And that's enough. You're in. No other questions asked. And it's this beautiful, magnificent, inclusive kind of love that Jesus demonstrates on the cross. In fact, it's this kind of love that he demonstrates throughout all of his life. And it's the same love he demonstrates to us all the time. Amen? That is amazing. And the Bible says that the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the worst sinners in the first century, are the ones that are gravitating to Jesus. They wanted to hang out with him. And we never see Jesus asking him any of these questions or interrogating him, which is what he does. He just goes to parties and hangs out with them and just loves them, which is probably why they liked hanging out with them, because no one wants to go to a party and be interrogated, right? Jesus doesn't do that. And when you look at him, he doesn't go to those people who are struggling with demon possession, and he doesn't ask them these theological interrogation questions. He doesn't go, how'd you get demonized, Mary? What in the world have you been doing? Right? He doesn't say, how have you been living your life to get to this place? He just sees the person in their oppressed state out of their power and out of his power and love and frees that person. And same with healing. Right? He, he goes to the blind and the, the deformed, and, and all these people are being judged. They're saying, everyone in the culture is saying, they must have done something really sinful to be in this situation. Jesus never does that. In fact, he rebukes that kind of thinking. If you look at John 8, we see this example, starting with verse 2. It says, at dawn he appeared, this is Jesus, in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They had made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, "Teach, uh, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses causes us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground at this. Those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, which we're not going to go into that sentence, but that's a good sentence. Uh, The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. In many ways, Jesus' entire life is a model, a living example or expression of this torn curtain. And if you think about it, in the Old Testament, this, this curtain, this Holy of Holies, was this place that if you were to go behind, you would be in the presence of God. And so it was very restricted on who could do this. It could only happen once a year, and that person had to hold a very important place as the high priest. And even to go in there, they had to make right sacrifices, they had to have the right clothing, they had to be washed in particular waters, and all of these things had to happen just to go behind that curtain. And even doing all the things, they went in with absolute fear and trembling. But when Jesus' death occurred, 
the curtain is torn in two. And it's though God is saying, okay, the wall of separation between my innermost heart, my presence in all people has been torn in two. God is shouting, ali, ali, oxen free. Anybody who wants in can now come in. The wall's been torn down. The wall has been destroyed. And that's what Jesus is modeling in his life, in his ministry, in his teachings, and in his death. It's like God has this giant bear hug now around all of humanity. And he's saying, whoever has any sort of desire to move towards me is considered in. And so you find passages throughout the New Testament that say things like this. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. It's like all of you used to be outsiders, but now I consider all of you capable of being insiders. It's a picture of this new kingdom of God that's being created, founded on the one life of Jesus. And it's from this perspective that God regards all who turn towards Jesus as insiders. It's that simple. Now, let me be honest, and of course, we can downright say no to this, right? We can say, I want nothing to do with this. I can resist this. I can say, this God's love, I don't care about it. I want to turn away from it. And God isn't going to force it on you. He's not going to make you a robot. You're fully capable as humans to bring upon your own decisions, bring upon your own destruction to the grief of God's heart. But from God's perspective, there's a torn curtain and the barrier is removed and all who want in are welcomed in. And so the cross, as we look at the story, reveals Jesus' prayer for forgiveness. You remember what he says? Forgive them, for they know know what they're doing. It reveals Jesus' dialogue with the thief. It reveals everything about Jesus and the true heart of God. And it's breathtakingly magnificent. Jesus, being the exact representation of God, represents the love that goes beyond any words that we could might even try to put to. It's beyond our comprehension. It's unfathomable, if you will. And the scriptures say it's as as far as wide as the east is from the west, that it's perfect, that it's unwavering, that knows no conditions and no boundaries and no parameters, and it's for everyone. So in other words, God doesn't make it hard to get into the kingdom. He's a God of lavish love, of lavish forgiveness, of lavish acceptance, That's what Jesus modeled. That's what the curtain being torn in two models, which is a big amen. It's not hard. You basically have to opt out. You have to choose to opt out to not experience that love. Now, the million-dollar question, though, is if God makes it so easy to get into the kingdom, why do churches make it so hard? Right? Why do churches, why do Christians make it so hard? If God's love is so inclusive, why do churches make it exclusive? If Jesus can say you're into the thief on the cross, then why don't we see that in our faith communities? Why does some churches seem like they have 47 requirements in order to be in? Where's the attitude towards the thief on the cross in the church? I think the answer to this isn't an easy one, but I think if a community is based on the all-inclusive love that Jesus demonstrates on the cross and throughout his life, which is what we're called to be as a church, it's going to look radically different from anything we've ever experienced. And that's really hard for us. Because throughout history, most, if not all communities, whether you're talking states 
or nations or tribes or ethnic groups or families or teams or schools, go dogs, neighborhoods, uh, political groups, you name it, uh, they all have some strong parameters of defining who's in and out. But a community that's centered on and rooted in and grounded in the love of God revealed perfectly in the one life of Jesus, it can't look anything like that. A community that's going to be rooted in the all-inclusive love of God will be a community that's defined by the center, not by parameters. And in fact, it really won't have identifiable parameters. It's just going to have the center. But being honest, we have a hard time experiencing and believing and describing this unconditional love and grace. And the reason is, is because we don't know what that's like. There's nowhere else, not friends, not family, not teachers, not anyone that can express this kind of love. The only way we can feel this and experience this is through a relationship with God because God is love. And so what we do is in trying to describe it, we add our own parameters to things. But it's this unconditional love that we as a church should be living out and inviting others to experience. And so it's this simple, not easy call we have as Christ followers to be the church. And let's also be honest to remember that ultimately the church is not this physical building, right? Uh, We are the church as Christians. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are God's representatives, which is why we're to live this out in our day-to-day life. We are to love all people the way Jesus would. And when we gather each week here to worship and give thanks for all that Christ has done, for us and for everyone, this should be the most inviting, love-filled place you could ever be, right? It could be the place where everyone is welcome. You say, come as you are, and we actually mean it. We don't say, come as you are. We got 27 parameters in order for you to come, right? It's a place where the table is open, and anyone who wants to come to Christ can come. And as a church, we always say that our vision is our name, and it starts with one life. And that one life is at the center of all that we do. It's the center, and it's out of that center that the rest of our vision follows. This is, this is my artistic rendering. Please don't send me back to art school. But with that in mind, I want you to be thinking about this. What parameters do you have with regards to your own faith? When you think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what do you think is needed What's needed from others to be a Christian? What things have you adopted that create an us-them understanding with regards to being followers of Jesus? What are the things that you hold so strong to that you're going to argue all those things about with someone else who also says they're a Christian? You see, this centered community versus a parameter community mindset should permeate everything, not just our understanding of Jesus and who can be a Christian or not. That's why the second part of our vision in our name is this word community. Because we're uh, not supposed to be viewing our community, or any community for that matter, with parameter thinking. Rather, we are called to be rooted and faithfully present in our community. We're called to be the church that reaches outward into our community, bringing the love of Jesus for all in all that we do. So the same love that Jesus shows to the thief on the cross is what we're supposed to bring and to live out and share with our community, with everyone. It's not just for this building. So with that, as you think about this 
How have you allowed parameter thinking to affect the way you view your community? How has it caused you to care or not care for parts or people within your community? Are there certain people or demographics or places within your community that for whatever reason you've kind of written off or you treat differently? Dr. Tim Keller said it this way. He says, in the end, we love people into belief. We do not argue them into belief. That's easier said than done, right? We are so programmed to do the opposite. Are there areas of your life where you've compartmentalized so much that no one has any idea you're a follower of Christ? How's that shape and fit into a Christ-centered way of thinking? Another conversation. Have we gotten so comfortable giving food or clothes to people in need in our community, but avoid actually having a relationship with those people in our community? This is why we launched our Magnuson Park Dinner Church, not just to provide food each week, which is nice, but more so to create a safe place to be in relationship with people, to be in a loving community where all are welcome, no questions asked, to tangibly express the unconditional love to all of Christ. Dr. Perkins says it this way. This is a hard one. People need more than your used clothes. They need the family of God in their neighborhood. They need the family of God in their neighborhood. This is what it means to be the church in the simplest form, to be Christ's ambassadors and representatives in all the ways we love, unconditionally like Jesus illustrated on the thief on the cross. So this means the way we see and view church should be a lot simpler as well, which is why the last part of our vision is this word church, and the way we say it is we are a church, nothing more, nothing less. That's our language. You see, in Christ-centered community, salvation is about participating in the life of God. It's a journey. It's a process thing, not a one-time thing. And the reason why we gather regularly is not about a requirement. It's about a reminder. It's a refresher. It's a refueling. It's a refocusing. It's a, it's a celebration. It's a party. It's all commemorating all that Christ has done for every one of us and everyone out there and everyone, period. So rather than church being about ambiguous parameters and requirements causing people to feel like they're in or not, it's more about our collective movement towards God and us all choosing again to direct ourselves and head towards Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you look at the scriptures in the New Testament and its conversation about salvation, what you find is that people who have grown up in parameter communities think of salvation as a one-time thing. And you can name the date and the time and the place, and you can name all those things, whether you've cared an ounce about it for the last 40 years. But you'll find in the New Testament that salvation is talked about in three different tenses. You were saved, but you also are being saved, and you shall be saved. It's a process. It's, it's a journey. It's, it's transformation. It's directionality. It's about our continued choosing to move towards a deeper relationship with Jesus, that which is in the center. So the church is simply a place where all are invited to join together in moving in the same 
direction. It's not a matter of who's in or who's out. It's not about how long you've been on the process compared to somebody else or anything like that. No, we all come. We're all welcome no matter where we are in the process. And it could be that we are coming for the very first time, and it's at this very first time that we experience something of the unconditional love of Christ for the first time. And just like the thief on the cross, we turn and we say, I want to join in this. I want to move towards this center. I want to enter into this journey. Or it could be you've been coming for the last 40 years and you keep going on that journey. The late Eugene Peterson wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And if you haven't read it, it's really good. Um, But it's not about how long you've been on the journey. It's more that you're on the journey and the direction you're heading as you're on that journey. And that looks really different from parameter thinking. So with that in mind, a couple more questions. Is there anyone you don't feel comfortable inviting to church? Maybe another way of asking it, who's missing from our church? Look around. Literally look around. What ethnic backgrounds, what generations, what genders, what political background, what financial status group, what culture is missing? And why do you think they're missing? What is it about our church, or any church for that matter, that makes any person or demographic feel welcomed in or not? What is getting in the way of you inviting certain people to church or, or not? Or just simply sharing that love of Jesus with them? Again, I, I wrote this sermon like four times, and I could keep on going. i got to stop. So I'm going to stop. I'm going to invite the worship team and the prayer team to come forward. Hopefully you heard a bunch of those questions um, as we do. If you haven't, you could pull out your connection card. Um, that would be great. Um, there's going to be some questions that we put up in just a minute because um, I think my presentation just went bye-bye. Um, but what I would love to do is just simply hear your thoughts, whether you answer any of the questions I asked, um, whether you have your own questions, that would be fine as well. Um, the band's going to play instrumentally just for a few moments to allow you extra space to process and to jot down your thoughts. Um, and I really would love to hear. So when you leave, if you drop that down, even if it's rich, you're crazy. What have you been on? You can put that there and write it in the box, and that'll make for a great conversation in our staff meeting. Um, but, uh, yeah, hopefully this is at, at the very least, caused you to think. And if anything, all I want you to do is reflect upon the love of Jesus in whatever way you've experienced it and how it should be changing and uh, affecting the way you see and treat others. As I said, the band's going to play. Take advantage of that spot of space. Whether you want prayer, you need to give thanks, to receive, to be filled, whatever you need. The prayer team is over here as well, so if you would like prayer, maybe you're here for the first time and you're like, ah, this sounds really good. I want to turn in this direction too. Prayer team or anyone would love to chat with you about that as well. Um, I would like to close, though, um, with a little quote from our church website, because I love the language, and I hope it translates for you as well. Um, And then I'll close us in prayer, and then we'll take that space. We'll close with a song. This is what comes straight from our website. It says this. Jesus is the source, inspiration, 
and focus of our worship. We see our church not as a building or religious institution, but as people who are actively trying to live by the power of God in us. Though we don't always do it well, we believe we are to love all, forgive ourselves and others, and heal what we can of the brokenness in our hearts and neighborhoods. We believe God can help us live and learn to live and love in ways that change us in our little corner of the world for the better. Amen. Father, Son, Spirit, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people here. Um, Thank you that you lead and guide and teach and encourage and, and challenge and support and provide in so many ways. Again, uh, it's, there's no way we can put words to the way you have loved us. And so we just say thank you. And God, we just ask that you would, again, blow up any parameters, that, any things that have gotten in the way of us sharing that love with others or treating people differently than we should. God, if there's things that we can do to make this place more inviting to people, help us to hear from you, God. Help us to not make the goodness of your love and grace difficult. Help us to show the beauty and simplicity of this unfathomable love to everyone, including ourselves. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.